John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Have you ever gone spelunking or caving? I love going into caves. I think it's fascinating. I'm afraid of heights, but the nice thing about going in a cave is even if there's heights, you can't see them, so it's not as scary. When I was just about to leave for Saipan a lot of years ago now, my dad took me out to Blanchard Caverns, Blanchard Caverns in Arkansas. And I've gone with my kids, and they have this nice little tour where you're on this sidewalk that goes through the caves and just the intricate stalactites and stalagmites, and they put all these lights in there that light them up so they just look really cool. But my dad and I weren't so interested in that tour. We went on a different tour. We went on the Adventure Caving Tour. This was a three-hour-long tour. Those tend to end badly with uh, shipwrecks and deserted islands. There were no islands involved on this three-hour tour. As we were going through the caverns, you had to wear coveralls because you were crawling. You had to wear a headlamp. You had to wear hiking boots to give you traction. And there were places where you're crawling through things like this tall. You had to walk through a little thing at the beginning just to make sure you weren't too fat to finish the tour. It was so much fun. But when you get in the depths of those caves, they always like to have everyone at the same time turn off their lights. And when we're above ground, we think of darkness as this kind of less light, right? You can see things in the dark. This week we went sledding and there weren't a lot of lights, but I could still see my kids. I could still see the people I was talking to because there's a little bit of light leaking into where we are. But when you're in the depths of a cave, you are completely stranded if your light goes out. There is no hope, really. If you're a mile into a cave, you're not getting out without light because you cannot see anything. And so, if you're in the depths of darkness, you need something desperately to find your way. You need a light. You need something outside of yourself. You need something to shine into the darkness to give you direction. How often do our lives feel dark like that? When we look at the world around us and we just sit all by ourselves, and we have no external sources of truth, we're simply looking inside ourselves, what can we possibly conclude about the world? We don't really know what's going on. Our perspective is so limited. We might be able to feel some things, but we really don't know exactly what we're talking about. We don't understand what we can see. We can't make sense of the world that we live in all by ourselves because we're in it. We're just seeing a part of it. We are in darkness. We need someone to shine a light on the darkness. The ancient Greek philosopher Plato knew this, and he used, in his book, The Republic, he used a parable of the cave. Maybe you read it in your junior high literature class. I think I did. But it's a story about a bunch of people who are chained to the wall in a cave, and they're only facing the wall. They can't look behind them. And they see shadows on the wall, but they think the shadows are all that there is. All they see are the shadows. So they think a shadow is existence. A shadow is a thing. 
But the reality is a shadow is just a projection of something else. And so in his parable, he talks about someone coming in, the philosopher who opens those chains and turns them around. And they see that what they thought was a bunny rabbit is actually someone with their hands. I don't think he used that illustration. They see that what they saw as just a blind movement is actually a beautiful bird flying. And they finally are given the full picture and they see reality truly. Until that point, they didn't even know what they didn't see. They just thought the shadows were everything. And so they needed someone to come in and give them light. In this portion of the Gospel of John, we are given a conflict between dark and light and a solution to that conflict. We are in darkness, but a light comes. That light is the word. And in this section, John, as he builds up to that great conclusion of this text in verse number five, the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Before he gets to what the light is doing today, he's going to define for us what the light is. This is the foyer of John, the foyer of John's gospel. We're getting in, we're orientating ourselves. It's like your first day at work when someone gives you a tour of the facility. This section is getting us properly oriented as we go through the book. One of the things that I try and do every time we jump into a book is from the very beginning, get us united around one principle. What is this book trying to say? And always that can be boiled down, should be boiled down into one sentence. Ecclesiastes, everything under the sun is vanity, so fear God and live for something over the sun. Second Timothy, suffer for a time knowing that deliverance is coming. So we get to John, and John is really helpful. Most of those texts, you have to kind of take the whole book, and you have to work your way through it, and you have to say, okay, here's a theme, here's a theme, here's a theme, here's a theme. How can I put those all in a sentence together and make a coherent theme? John is really nice. John doesn't make us do all that work. He actually gives us his theme explicitly in chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse number 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's saying, Jesus did a lot of stuff that I haven't written down. But these, the signs I have written down, are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John explicitly tells us, why am I writing this book? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. The whole purpose of the book of John is summed up in that one verse. Jesus is the Christ and that believing in him you might have life in his name. And so as we start working our way through this book, keep that in your mind. Hopefully we won't go a week without quoting that verse in a sermon because it ought to be the governing principle of everything we're looking at. How is John uniquely in this text trying to convince us that Jesus is the Christ and that believing we have life in his name? We need to ask that question over and over and over and over again throughout this book because John's already told us how to apply it. We're just figuring out how exactly to uniquely apply it in any given text. So, what's he doing here? How is he pointing us towards Jesus being the Christ? He is giving us evidence which enlightens us to the life-giving nature of the Son and calling us to faith in him. 
He's starting that process by defining who Jesus is. John's gospel is unique from the other three gospels. The other three are often lumped together and called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic coming from the root sin and optic. Same synonym, optic, optometrist. So synoptic is the three gospels that see things the same. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are largely going to say the same thing, slightly different emphases, slightly different styles. But if you're preaching from Mark, you're often going to be looking at Luke to get a little more information on the same account. John, however, is the most theological of the Gospels. It is less focused on recording history than it is on truly defining theologically who is Jesus. Last week, we started talking about the Incarnation in Sunday School, and we spent most of our time in John because it is so clear there. The doctrine of the Trinity, that's going to really rise and fall right here in the first chapter of John. It's a theological book about a historical person. There are historical events, but John records different historical events than the other Gospels, and he doesn't record some that they do record. He spends a lot more time on the last week of Jesus' life than the other Gospels. He has a different focus But he's making us, he's bringing us to the point where we recognize that Jesus is the Christ and believing in him, we have life in his name. Martin Luther, in talking about the gospel, described it this way. This is the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the holy scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John escape him, Christianity would be saved. These two books... John and Romans, the gospel is most abundantly clear in these two books. Who is Jesus? What has he accomplished? And so as we enter the foyer, we orient ourselves towards this battle between darkness and light, between life and death, and a hero who brings us from darkness to light, who brings us from death into life. That hero of this story is the word So let's look this morning at the identity of the word. It's not till later in the chapter, I believe it's verse 17, that it becomes explicit that the word is Jesus. When it says the word dwelt among us and then it starts talking about John the Baptist. Here he's talking in a more abstract sense. He's talking more theologically than about the historical person of Jesus. But he's doing it to really set Jesus in the theological mold of who he was and what he was accomplishing. So we start with The identity of the word, it starts with, let's look first at just simply that title, the word. Now, there is a bunch of ancient basis for using the word as kind of a reference to God or the animating principle of life, kind of a first principle. The Greeks have it, the Romans have it, the Jews have it. But they all use this concept, the logos, the word, to refer to something that gives order to the disorder. Something that makes something out of the universe. And so even when we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and there are many parallels between Genesis 1 and John 1. When we go back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but how did he do it? Let there be light. He speaks. His word comes out. And so God in his interaction with creation is speaking a word. He is revealing himself. And so the word here tells us who God is and what he does. When God speaks, stuff happens. 
look in the Bible when God speaks. I mean, most notably, God speaks and light exists. God speaks and the planets are formed. God speaks and the, the air, the water and the land are separated. God speaks and plants bring forth life. God speaks and humanity is created. When God speaks, something happens. And so here, the word God speaking, God communicating. Everyone is looking for the word. They just don't know it. Everyone is looking for something that organizes the world and makes it make sense. They might not all be looking in the Bible, but everyone wants to make sense of the world. They want to know what's in control. Maybe it's nothing, some people might think, but they want to know that. They want to know that, okay, so it's random. They want to know. They want to make sense of the world. That's why all around the world there is one universal commonality between all cultures, and that's that they have a religion. They look for a God. They look for an organizing principle. They look for someone who started everything, who organizes the world. And because they're fallen, because they do not have the revelation of God in the Bible, they come up with all sorts of crazy principles of what that first principle is. A lot of crazy ideas, but everyone around the world unites around the fact that there's something there. Now, in modern society... They don't want to call that God. Yet they will still hold to a universal scientific law which functions as God. The function of scientific law is very similar to how God functions and how the world looks at it. This is the organizing principle. This is what determines how things exist. Gravity, the second law of thermodynamics, all of these scientific principles, they become kind of a de facto God, the thing we look to to make sense of the world. Because everyone's looking to make sense of the world. But the word. There is a revelation. There is a speech from God. He speaks. He makes himself known. God's logos, God's word sets all things in motion. We cannot reach up to God. God must reach down to us. It's really the blasphemy of the Tower of Babel because God gave them a command and they said, we want to reach God. So they disobeyed the command. They disobeyed the way God had revealed himself to see God. And it's contradictory. It's this complete rejection of God. Yet our world is filled with it. Maybe not because we build towers. But our world is filled, my heart is filled with my own desire to reach God on my own terms. I need a path laid out for me. I need someone to do it for me. We create avenues of reaching God, and when we do so, we reject the way he has already reached out to us. We need God to reveal himself. We need God to make truth, to show truth in the world. And here, in this text, the word. God speaks the word is God. This section here is the clearest proclamation of Jesus as God in the entire Bible. Not only does the text explicitly say the word was God, that one's pretty easy to grasp, right? The word was God. We'll talk a little bit more about that phrase in a second. But it also makes it implicit throughout this whole text. These five verses are absolutely loaded with claims of Jesus' deity. First of all, in the beginning. Do you remember hearing those words starting any other book in the Bible? 
in the beginning, God. Okay, here, in the beginning was the Word. So, either the Word and God are two distinct people, or the Word is God. And if they are two distinct people, they were both in the beginning. No, in the beginning does not mean a long time ago. In the beginning means eternity. Because they didn't start in the beginning, they were in the beginning. God is in the beginning. He doesn't begin at the beginning. He already exists at the beginning. And here, the Word does not begin at the beginning. He already exists at the beginning. And this flies in the face of those who would say that Jesus was at some point created. That Jesus was the Son of God in the sense that he was born of God. That there was a time when he was not and there was a time that he was. We'll talk a lot more about Jesus being the Son of God throughout this book. And the eternal begottenness of the Son is a difficult thing to wrap our head around. For those who were in Sunday school last week, we've talked about it a little bit. But Jesus does not begin. In the beginning, the Word was. So, even in those three words that don't explicitly mention the name of God, it is clear whoever we are talking about was there when only God was there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, there are some who dispute this translation, the word was God. Particularly, you're going to hear this disputed by Jehovah's Witnesses. So they'll say Jesus is not God, and then you'll open up John 1 because it's the clearest declaration of Jesus being God, and they'll say, oh, that's translated incorrectly. So I'll kind of explain the translation principles that go into that so that you are prepared to answer that question at some point. The way that they would say it differently is maybe the word was godlike. The word had the properties of deity. Okay? The word had the properties of deity. So it's not that he was God, he just had a lot in common with God. Kind of like we are the image of God. Well, the problem with that is there is a word in Greek that was readily available for John the Apostle to write. John could have said the word was godlike. The word existed, right? And it was readily available and very similar to the word that he used. Yet, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not use that word. He does not say the word was godlike. He says the word was God, not theus, theos. All right? The word is God. So, that idea that it should be translated as the word was godlike, that doesn't carry much weight. The one that's a little bit stronger is that it could be translated the word was a God. Now, we're going to have to do a little bit of a deeper dive into Greek. I try not to do this too much, but I think it's important enough when you interact with a Jehovah's Witness to understand this, so we'll spend a little time. In English, we have an indefinite and a definite article. The definite article is the. The indefinite article is a. So, if I said, I am going to dinner with the wife tonight, that would be very different. You would have a different response to that than if I said, I am going to dinner with a wife tonight. Right? Those mean different things. The is very definite. It is personal. I am going to dinner with the person. I'm going to dinner with the president versus I'm going to dinner with a president. You know, tomorrow I have a meeting with a president. He is the president of the board of directors of Lake Country Academy. 
and I'm going to meet with him tomorrow night. But you would take that very differently if I got up here and I said, tomorrow I have a meeting with the president. You would know there's a difference. There's a unique one that I am talking about when I say the president. In Greek, they don't have the same articles as we do. They have a definite article, ha, and that definite article certainly makes things definite, but they also do not have an indefinite article. So it's basically either you have ha theos, the God, or you could have theos, and we would fill in the A. And so that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses are leaning on here. They're saying that in this text, we should provide the A. The word was a God. It does not say the word was a God. It just doesn't say the word was the God. The problem with that is that in Greek construction throughout the whole New Testament, it is not uncommon in this particular arrangement where you have a predicate nominative. We're going deep in English and in Greek right now. You have a predicate nominative. The word was God. That if the nominative afterwards does not have an article, it is very, very, very often definite. So it would be the word was the God. And most uses of this particular construction, that's how it's translated. It's one of those things, when people ask about learning Greek, my first response is, don't waste your time. Because if you're going to learn Greek, you're looking at about three years of work before it's not more harmful than it is helpful. Right? For the first, you always get these like young preachers and they've got a strong concordance and they find the Greek word. And then they're like, this is what this means. My favorite one, Romans 1.18, this is the power of God. The Greek word is dunamis. So some people, when they see that, they're like, dunamis. That's where we get dynamite from. This is the dynamite power of God that Paul was talking about. Problem being, dynamite was invented 1,900 years after Paul wrote, so he was not thinking about dynamite when he chose the word dunamis. And so we can use Greek really poorly. And this is an example where someone who does not know Greek, who has not done the work in the whole New Testament to see that, yes, this could mean this, but it more often is definite, that person really gets messed up when they turn here. And so the argument doesn't hold a lot of weight, even though it's technically plausible. And here's my response. Rather than going into a discussion of anarthrous predicate nominatives in Greek with a Jehovah's Witness, which you're probably not going to do great at. They're probably not going to be able to understand very well. Just read the other verses, right? This isn't the only one that says that Jesus was God, right? So know your Bible well enough that you're not relying on just this one verse, but don't panic and think, oh, wow, Jesus was a God. That changes everything. It's a possible translation. It's not the only possible translation. So the word was with God and the word was God. So you might ask, though, why wouldn't John say, why wouldn't he just use the definite article then? Well, it actually would change the meaning. And John is communicating this very complex relationship that all of us are going to struggle understanding, the idea that Jesus was with God, but he also was God. So there is a distinction between the word and God, but there is also a commonality between the Word and God. So, when we get to the doctrine of the Trinity, this is a place where we draw it from. 
How can Jesus simultaneously be God and be with God? Well, because we have a trinity. We have three persons of the trinity who share one essence. They are totally equal, yet they have distinct persons. And once you totally understand that, then you're already in heaven, so congratulations on dying. But that's hard to grasp, but we need this to get there. He was God. He was with God. Both of those things are present here. And so actually furthers John's argument to leave it without the article. As we go through this book, we're going to see the distinctiveness of the Trinity becoming plain as Jesus grounds his distinction from the Father in his sonship, his begottenness. He is begotten of the Father. That's the distinction between the Father and the Son. And we're just starting to see inklings of it here. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Next line, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Again, going back to Genesis 1 here. Genesis 1 is important in John 1. Who made all things? God did. And so when we see here that the one who was with God and is God also made all things, that fuzzy, how is Jesus the same and different from God, it becomes, wouldn't say clearer, but more obvious. We're dealing with a unique person, a unique being who doesn't exist in the same way that we exist. He exists as both God the Father and God the Son, while simultaneously both are one God, not three gods, one single God. Creation is an act of God which the Word participates in. And the very Word, the Word, we see that Jesus, the Son, is a revealer of God, and that's further enhanced in verse number four. In him was life, and the life was the light of God. Men. So in the Word, in the Son, there is life. And that life of the Son is a light. It is a revealer. It gives light to the darkness. The Word is the source of life. Again, we're pointing us if the Word is the one in whom life is and the one in whom the life that we receive came from, we see again the Word, Jesus, is God. Because God is the one who gives life. And if the word is Jesus, then Jesus is the one who gives life. So again, we don't need that simple statement, the word was God, to make a case from these verses that the word was God. It's the most clear, it's the most helpful, but the deity of Jesus Christ saturates every single word of these five verses. It's everywhere. This son, this person, Jesus, this man, Jesus, was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He is the life. He is the light. He is the speech of God. He is truly God. He reveals truth. He is life. He is light. Again, back to Genesis chapter 1. What is the very first thing that God creates in the world? Let there be light. Jesus is the source of that light. The Word reveals God. The Word is God. Yet the Word is distinct from God. The Word has given life to all creation. But we're dealing completely in past tense 
up to this point. The first four verses, it's all about in the beginning, what was, he was the light, he gave life, all past tense. But now in verse 5, we're going to change it up and we're going to move into the present tense. We were not there in the beginning. We cannot comprehend a being who is holy and separated from us. So we need to learn about the one who began stuff from Revelation. We need the word to be at work today. The light shines in darkness. The world we live in is filled with darkness. See, darkness in a number of different ways. The darkness of sin, where people think that sin is the way to get what they want. It's a conversation that I have with my kids every single day. You think that getting mad is going to work. You think that getting mad is going to get what you want. You think that crying and whining is going to get what you want. You're wrong. What you think is incorrect. They're in the dark. They think that their path through life is the best. But then let's expand it to adults. We do the same thing. We have a little more self-control. There's less stomping, less throwing ourselves on the ground. Yet we do the same thing. I want to feel good. Well, how am I going to go about that? I'm going to pursue my appetites that may be sinful. Or I may pursue non-sinful appetites in a sinful way. I'm going to do what feels good. I'm worried about the future. I don't know what's going to happen, so what am I going to do? I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to worry, and I'm going to be anxious about it. Rather than giving my worries to God in faith, I'm going to deal with my worries by dwelling on them. And it works really well, doesn't it, right? The more you worry, the less bad stuff happens. That's a proven fact, right? No. Yet, that's how we deal with it, some of us. We think that we have a path through life. We think that we've created the answers. I'm discontent. Therefore, I'm going to look at more stuff that I might want. I'm discontent. Therefore, I'm going to go into debt. Whatever it is, we look at the things that we lack and we come up with our own solution. But here in John 5, it says the light shines into that darkness. When we do not know the answer to our problems, the light comes into play and it shines forth and it reveals the truth. Well, what is that truth? True life is in the sun. True life is in the word. Our world is filled with darkness. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Millions of babies are aborted every year. It's a tragedy. Yet why does it happen? Why does abortion happen? Because someone looks at a problem. They look at, okay, I'm too young. I'm not married. I don't have enough money and I'm going to bring a kid into the world, and that's going to go badly. There's a problem, a legitimate problem. And they look for a solution, and where do they find the solution? They find the easy solution. I'm going to get an abortion, and I don't have to deal with the problem. But it's the same thing. It's a darkness and light. They're in the darkness. They're aware of their problem, and they cannot look to truth for a solution, so they end up trying to solve their own problem. Every single sin is like this. We face problems and we try and solve them with sin. But what we're doing is we are walking in darkness. But praise be to God, the light has shone forth. The light has been revealed. The true answer to all of my problems is the one who was in the beginning, who was with God, who is God, who sustains the world, who created the world, who is the life and light of men. 
That is the solution to an unwanted pregnancy. That is the solution to anxiety. That is the solution to lust. That is the solution to every sinful appetite my heart creates. My solution is to look to the light in the darkness. But because I am in darkness, I often just feel around like someone trying to escape a cave. Just try and find a wall. Try not to trip and fall because I'm trying to manage it myself. And it can be hopeless because we see the darkness around us. We see the darkness in our own life where our own solutions to our problems, our own solutions to the questions of our existence are unsatisfying. It seems hopeless. But the second half of this verse comes in and glorious triumph. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're in the present tense. The light is shining into the darkness, yet there's still darkness. We still see the darkness, but the darkness hasn't won. We're waiting. We're anticipating that one day the light will beat the darkness altogether. And the linchpin, the pivot point of that overcoming is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A world filled with darkness. Suddenly, on that day, 2,000 years ago, a light burst forth in Bethlehem. On that day, light comes to the world in the form of an infant. The one described here in the beginning with God, was God, creator, light, and life is held in his mother's arms, is held against her chest as she burps him. Has his diapers changed? grows up, skins his knee, relates with his brothers, learns, grows in wisdom and stature, favor with God and favor with man. That light has come, has broken in to our life. And so as you are walking and you feel the darkness, you feel the confusion, you feel the questions, maybe you're feeling that as someone who is not a believer in Jesus. Turn to Christ, the only source of light. But Christians, we're not immune from this either. We still feel that conflict, right? We still feel that pull between light and darkness. We know truth, yet we resist it every time we sin. We know that our satisfaction comes from obedience and faithfulness to God. We know that endurance is worth it. Yet we struggle, we falter, we trip, we fail. And so Christians, non-Christians alike, the answer is the same. If you are trapped in darkness, if you feel hopeless, if you feel lost, turn. Stop looking at the dark cave. Stop feeling around hoping you'll find your way in and turn on the lights. Look to our Savior. The Word became flesh who dwelt among us. The Word who is the light shining in the darkness, who is overcoming the darkness. You need light. We all do. Act in faith. Sometimes as we think about faith, we think faith is a blind leap in the dark or faith is belief in the absence of evidence. Faith is not belief in the absence of evidence. Faith is the proper response to evidence. I have faith in God. I have faith in Christ because the evidence has already shown him to be worthy of faith. Faith in the absence of evidence is foolishness. 
There would be no reason for me not to create my own God as my solution to all of my problems without any evidence. That's what the world thinks of as faith. That's what they're doing. They're the ones who live that way. They're the ones creating their own solutions. The Christian is one who looks at the evidence that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him we have life in his name. That is true faith. And in this book of John, we're going to see that evidence laid out. Who is the word? Who is the one who is worthy of our faith? Sometimes that's challenging. Christianity as a faith looks fully towards the future based completely on the past. And sometimes the present feels a little disconnected. We look back, Jesus came to earth. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended into heaven. All these things are historical. Jesus will reign. Jesus will judge. Jesus will wipe the tears from our eyes. All those things are future. And then today, we're in the here and now, and we're like, this kind of stinks. Sick of looking back and looking forward. I just kind of want to look at today, right? We feel that tension. It's why God gave us the word of God, because it keeps the past present. As we open up this book of the Gospel of John, we can go back and visit Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We can go back and encounter the incarnate word, the God taking upon himself flesh. We encounter him, but it still sometimes leaves us wanting, right? And in his providence and his sovereignty and his wisdom, God knew this would happen. Jesus knew it would happen. And so when he left... He left some stuff behind. He left the church behind. We have a family in Christ of those who are like us adopted. Those of us who like us have been enlightened by Christ who see that we're looking forward to an expectation for a hope based on a past and we walk together. We encourage one another. He's given us the gift of the word. We open up his word and we can reflect. We have a concrete firm foundation that we look to. As we open his word, we can see the word was God. The word dwelt among us. There is life in his name. We look at this book and we're anchored. Another way that God, knowing the tension between past and future, has blessed us is that he's given us the ordinance of communion. And today, as we partake of communion together, we're living in that tension. In the beginning was the Word. That was a long time ago, infinity ago. Then, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. And then sometime at an undetermined date in the future, we don't know when, he's going to come back again. And we're kind of hanging in limbo. So this morning, we will partake of the elements of communion. This morning... We will hold in our hands this representation of Jesus' body and blood. We will put it in our mouth. We will chew it. We will drink it. And we will be reminded that while we are people looking towards the past with hope in the future, that Jesus is very much alive today. In him was life. Think about how that plays with the crucifixion. The word who is life becomes flesh and the word dies. Yet he cannot stay dead because the word is life. The word is life. Death cannot hold him. And today we celebrate that as we partake of communion.